Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. In 2003, James Buchanan, one of the fathers of public choice, wrote, quote, public choice may be summarized by the three-word description, quote, politics without romance, end quote. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today on May 4th, 2020, or Star Wars Day, or 2020, it's 2022. <laughs> uh, my head might be somewhere else. Um, today, I'm Really excited to be talking to Randy Simmons about this. He's the director of the Institute of Political Economy at Utah State University and is the author of Beyond Politics. I wanted to talk about this book because so many people have said it's life-changing, have recommended it, and I think it's a great introduction to the topic of public choice, but it's also good for understanding what public choice is even about. Welcome, Randy. Thank you. So before we jump in, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Um, wow. That, way to ask me a tough question. The most <laughs> important thing, the most important thing about government is that we ask it to do more than it can and certainly more than it should. Uh, that, uh, when people say, oh, the government should do that, when their, their view of government is normally sort of like their view of unicorns. They believe that things that governments can do things they simply cannot. At least they can't do them well. And uh, so at least from a public choice perspective, that might be uh, the most important thing. Here's another way to say it, that, uh, that, People in economics claim that you know there are market failures, and therefore governments have to fix those market failures. And uh, what they forget is that, or don't even understand, is that there are also government failures, and that most government attempts to fix market failures make things worse. In fact, that was that was the working title of the of the book Beyond Politics. It was. Uh, 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 the limits of well, let's see what was it anyway the the, the <laughs> subtitle was on making things worse <laughs> oh that's funny that would have been good but speaking of why is it called beyond politics what exactly is beyond politics um, I. I I didn't even I didn't even understand this um, while I was in graduate school. I, I uh, it suddenly came to me that <laughs> that most of what we ask governments to do, governments are simply unable to do. Now let, let me back up. I spent 10 years 
uh, in the city government. Six years as a, as a city as a member of the city council, and uh, four years as as mayor. And what I discovered there, in, in practical terms, is that governments can uh, do a pretty good job of having a sewer system, having a water system. Uh, we were pretty good at keeping at, at filling potholes and at collecting garbage. Now, what's interesting is all of those things can be done, in fact, better by private industry, but at least government can do those basic things. But when it comes to uh, doing a lot more than that, it just um, fails. The I was going to... Oh, here's a... When um, Ronald Coase was, uh, he was the editor of the Journal of Law and Economics for Forever, and, and Ronald Coase was a, a Nobel Prize winner. He said, when we dis what we discover is that most regulation does produce or has produced in recent times a worse result. When pushed to identify what he would consider a good regulation, an example of a not so good regulation, he responded, uh, I don't know what there's a good one. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, he says that it's what happens is that when governments, especially uh, national governments, operate on such a massive scale that they get to the point of diminishing marginal returns. Things they just things get worse. And by the way. Uh, that doesn't mean that I think that local governments are really necessarily great either. Uh, I, I, let, I ended my time as an, uh, after 10 years in city government being a serious proponent of federalism because I want a state government restricting things that local governments can do. I want a national government restricting things that state governments and local governments can do because local once, once people are elected, they somehow become smarter than anyone around them. It just magically happens, like the next day. And they believe they know how to run things, uh, <laughs> even though they don't. Uh, I, I once gave a talk to the League of Cities and Towns. Uh, and I called it the... Uh, well, it this tells you how long ago it was. I call it the Yellow Pages Test. There used to be phone books. Julia, there were phone books. And uh, in the back of the phone books were the yellow pages, which is where everybody who, all the businesses listed their businesses. So, And what I said was, uh, if you can find a service in the yellow pages, then government should not be doing it. Because in the yellow, the folks in the yellow pages can do it more efficiently. Today, you would just Google it and say, okay, who do I get to fix this pothole? Um, but in the old days, you know, like 20 years ago, uh, there were yellow pages. Um, so I, I don't, I've just heard Beyond Politics described so many times as the best available primer on public choice. In fact, I mean, James Buchanan, who I quoted earlier, was also quoted to say, oh, at, and some background listeners, um, he got a Nobel Prize in economic science and 
was an intellectual powerhouse of public choice. Um, he wrote this about your book. He said, quote, we have needed an answer to the question often asked, can you refer me to a single book that will explain this in simple language what public choice is all about? Beyond Politics by William Mitchell and Randy Simmons meets this need superbly, end quote. Why is it so important to communicate the the concept within public choice and to do it in a simple way to the public? Well, because it's not intuitive. Uh, if people sit back and think about it, it's completely intuitive. But basically, uh, it's we have uh, in many ways a romantic vision of 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 government. We believe governments can do good things. We believe that governments ought to do good things, and maybe they should, but the, the next question is, can they, in fact, do them? Uh, uh, and so it's useful to explain to just explain in very simple terms that when uh, people go from the supermarket to the voting booth, they are still the same people, and they're still going to be motivated out of their own interests as opposed to others' interests. When someone's elected to office, what hap- what drives them, primarily what drives them, is getting reelected. Uh, if you're in the House of Representatives in the United States, for example, the day after the election, you start your reelection campaign. Uh, and the um, calculus for deciding on uh, how to vote is often a calculus. Is this going to win me? You know, if I'm going to vote this way on this policy, is this going to win me votes in my district, or is it going to lose me votes? Uh, and if once we realize that I don't, that politicians and voters and bureaucrats and interest groups are actively involved in the game of politics, uh, pursuing their own interests, then we understand that the public interest is not served very well, uh, and often only by happenstance. But we think when somebody goes into uh, into politics, they do it for a noble cause, a noble purpose, and many do. But the problem is that they vote calculus soon uh, soon dominates their thinking. So, well, I was just going to say, what are the main ways that? we, and even economists, romanticize politics? I mean, obviously, we think they should be doing these things, but are there any examples of the main ways where we fail to see the reality? We believe that markets are going to fail to make people better off, that they'll only make some people better off and other people worse off. I probably I think the and, and in in those terms the probably the worst thing that we but is generally believed is that um, markets or are a zero sum game or a sometimes negative sum that everything that I win in a market I steal from you uh, when markets aren't that way at all uh, in order for me to make myself better off I have to offer you something that's going to that that. It's going to make you better off. So trade is trade is win-win as opposed to win-lose. But we believe that it's win-lose, and that's why people get so upset that some people make a lot of money. Uh, it's it's you know the envy that drives them is because they believe those people gained their money 
unethically, uh, and that we should th- therefore take it away from them without ever thinking, well, what are the incentives we're going to create when we take things away? Uh, so it's that sort of viewing markets as win-lose as opposed to win-win is, I think, the biggest thing. And I mean, so that's a lot of the time what people refer to as like a market failure and you think there's a market failure, you think the market will fail. And so then you want government to intervene. Um, and you mentioned it before, but government does fail. Um, it happens. And I mean, often when they go to fix a quote unquote market failure, whether or not it really is something that should be pursued or not, it fails worse. Um what are the main factors that are overlooked by the majority of people that would explain why government fails? Well, the, the first thing is um, that uh, the governments, when, when governments try to create policies, they don't have the sort of knowledge of uh, the local knowledge to understand how those policies are going to affect people at the local level. They, so th- you think in a grand scheme and you end up uh, and it, you, you don't see that important knowledge of time and place. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. I, I actually, I worked in the department of the interior in Washington, DC for a few years. And I, uh, I was in the Office of Policy Analysis assigned to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which, by the way, may be the worst agency in the United States. Uh, but um, I, when, when I was assigned to them, I, they were talking about what to do about scholarships for students to go to college. And there, <laughs> here were the rules. You didn't have to have a minimum high school GPA. You didn't have a, a set time. You know, you could you could go to school for two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen years, and, and still get the scholarship. Uh, you didn't have to maintain a minimum GPA, and you didn't have to take a minimum number of hours. And if you dropped out during the semester, uh, the the tuition refund came to you, not back to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Think about all of the bad incentives that are there. Uh, and so I suggested that they look at what the Navajo uh, nation does with its scholarships. They, you have to have a 2.0 high school GPA. You can only have the scholarship for six years. You have to maintain a 2.0 GPA uh, while you're in college, and you have to take, I think, it's either 10 or 12 credit hours each semester. And the folks at the uh, at the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs thought, well, this is great. Let's Let's do what the Navajos do. So sounded wonderful to me. I come back uh, to my university, and I'm, I t- I'm teaching in my first uh, – actually, we were on quarters then, not semesters. But my first quarterback, I get a, a kid in my class who's off of uh, the, the Ute reservation. And the education he got from the Bureau of Indian Affairs was terrible. Absolutely terrible. And this is a kid who was smart, motivated. He wanted to do good things in his life. And he simply could not carry more than six or eight credit hours. He uh, 
he needed to have so much remedial work that it was going to take him a long time to get through college. Uh, and just so I think I've done a great thing as an as a bureaucrat. And I come back and I discovered that I've ruined this kid's life because he can't he cannot get through college under the rules that I got the Bureau of Indian Affairs to impose. We just don't have that sort of local knowledge that's necessary uh, when when creating policies. And uh, the other thing that happens is that policies aren't created in a vacuum. We don't just sit back and think, oh, what's the right thing to do? You've got all kinds of interest groups wanting to have their ideas pushed or their uh, industries benefited. Uh, so, And those things get written into... Uh, into law. I have another another example of that. My my son was the assistant secretary in the Department of Energy for Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, and he called me uh, to tell me about what had happened to his agency's budget in one of the budget rounds. And the House had, uh, I think, allocated something like. 1.8 billion to his agency. The Senate allocated when it, the bill went over to the Senate. The Senate increased that to 1.8, and so then what happens is uh, when things are different between the House and Senate, they go to a conference committee, and the conference committee uh, can do lots of uh, interesting things there. But one of the things they did is uh, he said, you know, I was allocated 1.2 and then 1.8, and it went to conference and they split the difference and gave me 2.2 billion. And that was simply because there were some lobbyists who were working uh, with people in the conference committee wanting more money put into renewable energy. So it wasn't what the House had voted. It wasn't what the Senate had voted. It was more than either of them had voted. And it's just those kind – that's uh, what ha- what makes up the bills that we get out of a Congress or a legislature. Wow. That's – wow. Uh, that – Wow. I just can't even wrap my head around how that's possible and why we let that sort of thing fly. But I think most people don't even know because it's kind of out of reach. But wow, that is that is some overreach right there. Um, Those are great examples. I was going to ask for some examples, but there we go. Um, Wow. That is so fascinating. So, okay, kind of a little off topic. Is there any other, I mean, obviously, the picture you've painted of um, where you worked in D.C. does not, it's not a pretty picture. But why else do you think it's the worst? Oh, the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the worst because they treat Native American tribes as children. They they create rules that are based in some strange ideology sometimes uh, or some belief about how Native Americans lived and as as if there is this one group called Native Americans. These are all people from very different tribes and histories. And that because of that, they're not one people. They are just they're just so many different. But we treat them all really broadly as as one. So here's an an example of what happens on the Navajo reservation. 
because of rules that were created by the uh, by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So when when the Navajos were forced onto the reservation, people got actually title to some of the property. But the rules that were set up were such that if I got property and I have two children, each of them gets half of my property. And then if each of them has two children, those children get half of what their parents got and on and on and on. So you can have a piece of property that has uh, over a hundred different owners uh, and any one of them can stop any kind of development. So if uh, I was asked by one of the areas of the reservation to help them put together an economic development plan, and we went down there and they, they needed uh, some you know, some space for like a laundromat. But the problem was, how do you put a, how does you get someone to put in a laundromat when they, when, you can't even get property to put it on. And then, by the way, it takes five years for you to get a, 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 a business license approved. Uh, and it's just, it's mind-boggling. If you want to go to the developing world or the not developing world, just go to m- almost any reservation in the Western United States. Uh, it's, it's amazing how bad things are. And it gets promoted and perpetuated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I really dislike them. Can you tell? Wow. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like it's with good reason. Um, That's, well, that's government. Uh, I wish I could say that I was more shocked, but I'm not that surprised, sadly. so back to public choice. Well, I guess it's kind of related. Um, public choice also explains how political decision-making results have outcomes that are costly. I mean, with the example with the budget and how they got more money than what anyone in Congress even said, um, it's costly and it's inefficient and it's unfair. And to me, the first thing that really comes to mind is cronyism. Why don't you think, why do you think that people don't see how unfair it is that government allocates so many favors and subsidies to not just like businesses, but even like if you want to go big businesses, they give so many like carve outs and favors to big businesses. Why don't people that think or see that that's unfair? And then when they do, why do they blame businesses instead of blaming the government? Well, one reason is that, you know, all of us are living our lives and we only know of particular benefits from government if we get them. We don't know about ones that other people get. Did you know that you pay more than twice and sometimes four times the world price for sugar? What? I did I not know that. <laughs> no, you didn't know that. But there are uh, sugarcane raisers in Florida who make millions of extra dollars because of the import restrictions on uh, cane sugar from uh, especially the Caribbean. Uh, And so they make millions and we don't pay, you know, it costs us, what, 
$20 more a year individually for sugar? We don't know. And we're not going to organize to go to Washington to say, stop this stupid subsidy because it's only costing us 20 bucks. It's not going to do make a huge different to, difference in our lives to organize, but it sure makes a huge difference in the lives of those farmers. And so most things in politics uh, uh, of the sort you're talking about are like that. The benefits are concentrated and the costs are dispersed. And because the costs are dispersed across everybody, we don't even see them. We don't recognize them as really being costs. But if because we concentrate the benefits on the particular groups, then the people who are in those groups have an incentive to know about it and to encourage Congress to keep spending it. And there are always claims that it's in the public good. It's in the public interest to be doing this, you know. Uh, and then they, they explain why, and it sounds reasonable. Uh, but it's when you add it all up, we end up with the kind of budget that we have. Uh, if the individual pieces of the budget had to be voted on individually, we would have a much smaller budget. But instead, what we have is this big, uh, what political scientists sometimes call a Christmas tree budget bill, where uh, you have the bare bones and then everybody gets to hang their own ornaments on the tree in order to get other people to vote for. So I'll vote for your ornament if you'll vote for mine. That is, if I'll vote for this benefit in your district if you vote for the a benefit in my district. And uh, so all of this trading of votes across these different kinds of issues ends up with uh, uh, Christmas tree bills, or we also call it pork barrel politics. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, no one has an incentive to figure it out and do anything about it. Almost no one. Uh, if you are, uh, if, if you're part of that, those people who get cost dispersed, but you have a huge incentive if you're getting the particular benefits. Yeah, I remember learning in government class a few years ago about, I mean, we were introduced to it as the Christmas tree bill. Um, and the examples, I wish I could remember them, but the examples that my teacher brought, and we went through like a list of all of these really, 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 really random allocations of money to random people and businesses and groups. And it was just like so shocking because it was such like it was so nichely specific. It just really shows how much of a hold interest groups have on government. And you're right. I mean, it is shocking just how much um I don't know, like how incentivized you are to do that because you can get away with something like that and it is possible. Are there particular institutions, though, that are preferred by public choice scholars to address some of the problems like that? Um, well, as I mentioned, I'm, I, I became a fan of federalism. Uh, you know, if we read in the Federalist Papers, we read Federalist 10, they we end, didn't end up doing things the way that they had hoped, but yeah, having having different powers allocated to different forms of government, uh, and so that they can be a check and a balance against each other, that's the sort of thing that gets promoted. Uh, Jim Buchanan uh, wrote a 
I'm looking at a book on my shelf right now. It's called Freedom and Constitutional Contract. He believed that constitutions were terribly important and that uh, we could restrain government through uh, uh, contracts or constitutions. The uh, One of the things that, that can happen in, when you create a constitution is that you can limit the powers of the government. Now, uh, we so we have done in some areas done fairly well at that in the United States and other areas not so much uh, but everybody's uh, there's a continual pressure to expand the power and scope and reach of government uh, and very little momentum to restrict it uh, uh, and so we get we end up with like the healthcare system that we have today which um, is fully messed up, but not as messed up as it could be. <laughs> and not as messed up as, say, the Canadian system or the English system. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's... So just the restrictions on the scope of government are probably the best thing that can happen. The trick is, how do you get those restrictions in place and how do you keep them in place? It's hard. Uh, the uh, a public choice economist that would be, or political scientist, would want to restrict the sorts of things that we can vote on. Uh, in the, you know, because there's you know, democracy, it turns out, is not a good form of government. But it's be- as Winston Churchill said, it's better than the others. The question is... Uh, should we re- what sorts of things should people be able to vote on? Should we be able to vote? Should I be able to vote on whether or not my neighbor can build uh, a new building on his property? Should I be able to vote on uh, on where roads go? Uh, sound like reasonable, but reasonable things possibly, but that sort of democratic expansion of, of the of the franchise Demo, expanding the, the scope of things that we can vote on really uh, becomes a tyranny of the majority and what's interesting in the if you in the federalist papers the, the American founders were far more interested in the tyranny of the majority than they were in uh, uh, other forms of tyranny and so that's why they wanted a uh, a government where you had where powers were restricted and uh, there were checks against uh, different different levels of government. Why do you think that public choice continues to be ignored by so many economists and so many political scientists? I think, I mean, you made a good case for why it makes sense for the public, right? It doesn't really affect any one of us a ton. But, I mean, $20 a year extra for sugar. I mean, the thought of it is more annoying than the actual $20, probably. Um, But you would hope more for economists. Well, so public choice started primarily among a a group of economists uh, that... The first people who were 
started thinking about these things, had they developed a, an academic journal and they called it Papers in the Theory of non, Non-Government Decision-Making, something like that. I mean, terrible title. But what they meant was let's develop some – let's think about how governments – how people in government act. And let's use the same tools that we use in economics. That is, let's assume that people are rational. That is, that they're goal-oriented. They have goals. They try to achieve them. They're more interested in achieving their goals than somebody else's goals. They respond to incentives. Those you know, basic fundamental assumptions that are in economics. Now, among political scientists, that was something completely new at the time and also was viewed as imperialism by the economists. So you know, economists t- tried to take over our discipline, and there was huge pushback uh, in political science. Uh, and so it really didn't make many inroads. There, there are, it's made more inroads now than it was, say, 20 years ago. But among economists, uh, what happened at what was going on at the same time is that economists were they had uh, physics envy. They they wanted these to be able to de- develop these complex mathematical models, and doing the modeling became more important than actually understanding the world. I believe, and so they became m- much of economics became recreational math. Uh, and so they they weren't necessarily motivated by theory, by, by understanding you know broad concepts behind uh, the economy. They wanted to do math and make these little tiny marginal change uh, uh, differences in in their models, and you got uh, rewarded for publishing in you know like the journal Econometrica. Uh, and for being a really good mathematician as opposed to being good at thinking about how the world actually works. I have a colleague who's a macroeconomist, and he's completely honest about it. He says, you know, all of my publication is in um, macro models. I live inside my computer. Uh, My models work really well inside my computer. They don't reflect the real world at all. But he gets all of his papers published. So uh, it was, you know, if you think about economists who tried to understand how the world works, let's start with Adam Smith. Uh, And I mean, and we can we can go clear back to Plato and Aristotle as people who are trying to figure out how people interact, what how people actually live together, which is what economists are should be trying to do. That's what, that's what Adam Smith was trying to do. But so there's this whole, uh, but, but that sort of vision of economics sort of fell out of favor as, uh, as the mathematicians took over. I, I don't know that that's a correct answer to your question. It's the answer that makes sense to me. I think that's a good answer. Um, what is the most surprising thing that you learned from public choice? Wow. That good intentions are not enough. That 
so my undergraduate degree was in political science. My graduate degree was in political science. Luckily, I was I worked with one of those people who was who founded the Public Choice Society. There were like three political scientists, and the rest were all economists. Uh, but you know, I had this kind of romantic view of politics that if we just have good intentions, we can make good things happen, and good intentions are. We need to not look at the intentions of those who are who are creating a bill. We need to look at the incentives that are created by that bill and how uh, and if it will actually accomplish what it wants. Because most regulation ends up, make, as I said earlier, making things worse, not making things better. Uh, e even though most regulation is rooted in someone's good intentions. You seem to have spent some time with the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs. How? And then, obviously, now you do a lot of public choice, and you're at a university. How did you get there? What is the relationship between all of that? Well, uh, dumb luck. <laughs> hmm. You know, so much of life is serendipity. Uh, and just the people you meet along the way and uh, the their, the opportunities that they create for you. So I had the person who was the director of the Office of Policy Analysis and Interior was an academic friend who I'd met at a couple of conferences. And he called me and said, hey, I'd like some help in D.C. How'd you like to come and spend a few years? Well, of course, yes. Uh it was like getting a second PhD in terms of the education I got out of it. Uh, but, uh, uh, and then I just happened to have good and interesting colleagues, uh, both at my university and people I had met elsewhere that I was able to do work with. And that, again, it's just, a lot of that was was luck, and then when I when I went into city government, it's because I was so irritated at the people who were there. I I assumed you know I can't screw it up as badly as they are. So, and uh, so I did that. And, and by the way, I I could have been mayor for a lot longer, uh, mm -hmm. but I discovered my my public choice training kicked in, and. I realized that I really liked being called Mr. Mayor. I liked the deference that people were giving me. Uh, and I, so when I'm cynical about people who are in public office, it's because I've been there and I know the kinds of uh, sort of pressures you didn't expect or you don't even recognize if you're not looking for them. Uh, but when I started thinking about the city as being an entity instead of being com comprised of all of these individual citizens, uh, I realized this is corrupting me. So I didn't run again, but I don't know that I would have recognized that without my public choice training, without thinking seriously about what's happening and what, what's being, what's, how is this system working? Wow. 
I've heard so many stories of people who have spent time in office and in government saying that they, even if you come in with the purest, best intentions, it does like, if you pay attention, you can feel it changing the way you think, changing the way you feel, changing your behavior. And that is, it's kind of scary in a way. Um, I wish that we had more time, but we don't. So I'm going to ask you one final question. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Yeah, I'm 72, uh, so I don't remember. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad excuse. Um, I believed that good intentions were sufficient to get make good things happen. And uh, they're not. It requires... Uh, you know, just preaching about doing the right thing doesn't work. You have to have uh, incentives in place to in- that encourage people to do the, the the right thing. And by that, I mean that's why I want to restrict the, the sorts of things that government can do because it's likely to be overused and abused. I didn't realize that when I was in college and as an undergraduate, I thought. I mean, I was a political science major. I thought the governments did great things. So I've become far more cynical about the ability to make things better. Do you think that, I don't know, do you think that this is, we're all doomed? <laughs> um, I would, I hope not. Uh, I have grandkids, so I have, I hope that their world will be better. Actually, if you look at sort of macro topics, uh, there are fewer uh, you know, terribly poor people in the world today than there were 10 years ago, even though we have a lot more people. Uh, we have, you know, governments do some stupid things like all of the spending that was done by the current administration, the previous administration, basically everybody since George W. Bush. Uh, and we, and so right now we're going to be living through a period of inflation and it's going to be a recession, but we'll recover. Uh, the, the economy is resilient because people are resilient. We figure out ways to get things done, even though government tries to get in the way. And so I'm actually really quite optimistic about the state of the world. Yes, we have uh, we have Mr. Putin, but he'll pass. Uh, we have China going backwards instead of the uh, forwards the way they have for the last uh, thirty or forty years. Uh, but I expect that'll change. You know, the, the pressures of, from doing dumb things eventually overcome the dumb things. Uh, and so things get get better. I, uh, I mean, I had always thought that free speech was something that would be always uh, respected in the United States. It's not now, but I I believe it'll get better. I'm 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 optimistic about people and our ability to work around, improve, uh, and go about living our lives. And so. Yeah. I'm cynical about what government does, but I'm not cynical about people.
Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight. And I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.